0: Live every weekday at noon and then up as a podcast, this is MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Mags with 30 minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. It's Thursday, the 14th of December, coming up on the programme. Concerns raised over Gauteng's new police wardens and the powers they have. South Africa's 2023 economic performance, it's a tale of two halves. Does the COP28 climate deal go far enough? Ignoring insurance over the festive season at our peril. And more on the new Netflix big data dump. This is causing some controversy. Gauteng's crime prevention wardens have been declared peace officers, and that means they will have the power of arrest and can carry a firearm. But many experts are saying, though, there are grounds for serious concern. One of those is Dr. Jean Redpath, senior researcher at the Dula Omar Institute at the University of the Western Cape, who leads our program on this Thursday. And firstly, can you explain the confusion surrounding these legal powers?
1: There are a number of problems with how it's been reported and what is actually possible in terms of the law. So the first problem is that provinces cannot do any kind of policing in terms of the constitution. The constitution says that provinces have three possible avenues to policing power. One is the powers in the constitution, which are largely limited to uh, monitoring police conduct police-community relations, commissions of inquiry like the Kailiche Commission, where those police-community relations have broken down. Then it also opens the door to national legislation giving provinces some power and the minister Mm. allocating uh, functions. Now, neither of these things has happened. There hasn't been legislation giving any power to provinces and there hasn't been an allocation by the minister to provinces. So, provinces do not have the power to do any sort of policing of this nature. Secondly, the way Section 334 works is there's an underlying competence. So, for example, this is the section in which you can have a declaration as a peace officer. So peace, there isn't a a set of powers that is consistent for every peace officer. Each individual type of police officer has a discrete set of powers. So, for example, in the Northwest Provinces have powers to make legislation on gambling. So, the Northwest has passed legislation on gambling and it has provided for offences in terms of the Gambling Act, their Gambling Act, and they therefore applied to the minister for peace officer powers to be conferred on their gambling officers to enforce that legislation. So, what the declaration in the Gazette will do is it will say this category of person. So, gambling officers have been given powers in respect of these offences, gambling offences. These are the kinds of powers. So, for example, typically it will be the power to issue a notice or to search and seize items involved in the offence. And then it will also delineate the jurisdiction. In the case of Northwest, it will be the Northwest province. So, there needs to be an underlying competence, and the Gazette will clearly specify the powers that have been given. Now, the minister can't just make a statement and then suddenly people have powers. Mm. But it needs to actually be in the Gazette, and there needs to be an underlying competence. And that's not not the end of the story either. So you have this category of persons who has now been given a particular set of powers and a particular jurisdiction over a particular set of offences. Each individual person must then be signed off by the National Commissioner of Police as not having criminal offences. They usually require also that they've not been declared unfit to possess a firearm. That doesn't mean they can possess a firearm. It just means there's a process in law that happens when you've been convicted of an offence that Mm -hmm. you are so declared. And the National Commissioner must sign off that he's satisfied as to the training you've received. Now that has to happen for each and every person who wishes to exert those powers. So none of that has happened. <laughs> and typically that takes months. The process, uh, you know, th- this was a big problem for the city of Cape Town, getting sign off on on all of their law enforcement officers, all their metro police officers in, this, in, the, in the similar way. Each individual person has to be considered and signed off by the SAPs. So that's another thing that must happen. So, when it comes to yeah. firearms, that's a whole different mm. piece of legislation. That's the Firearms Control Act. It's employees of someone which the Registrar of of Firearms has designated as an official institution. Such official institutions have to meet certain requirements. They have to have a safe place for firearms. They have to be able to do training, all sorts of things. And then they then issue permits to employees. Now, it's unclear to me whether the Gauteng Department of Safety and Security has been declared an official institution. It would seem to me that they probably don't have all of that in place, and so it's unlikely. And so they would also not be able to issue any permits for firearms.
0: So let me ask you this then. Central to this issue seems to be the phrase underlying competence. What does that mean and how is that rectified?
1: Well, it cannot be rectified because there is no power in the constitution currently for provinces to carry out policing powers. There are powers for provinces to make legislation on gambling and to police that, to have liquor legislation and to police that. There have been peace officers declared in, in respect of liquor officers. But currently at the moment, there is no such power for provinces which is why the Western Cape went to such great lengths to make a deal with the city of Cape Town to hire additional law enforcement officers employed by the city of Cape Town because municipalities do have those powers, provinces do not. So unless the Minister of Police, so not the Minister of Justice, unless the Minister of Police in his national policing policy makes an allocation to a province of a policing power, there is no underlying constitutional basis for such powers to be given to the institution of the counting government.
0: So peace officers that are currently walking the beat, uh, they would legally be deemed inoperative. They carry no power and therefore people would not have to listen or obey them.
1: So, I mean, every individual has powers of citizens arrest. So in the same way that neighborhood watches or community police forums may have certain powers, for example, if someone is committing an offense in front of you, you or me or a member of a neighborhood watch, and it has to be a serious offence, that's a Schedule 1 offence, like theft, like uh, robbery, those kinds of offences, then all of us have the power to address that person if we can. So that's the extent of the powers that the Gauteng crime wardens, and I'm not going to call them peace officers because they are not peace mm. officers. They haven't been hasn't been published in the Gazette. Hasn't, they haven't individually been accredited one by one. And so they are not peace officers. They are simply, you know, like a neighborhood watch or a community police forum. It's, it's, they do not have any powers.
0: Thank you very much for the clarification, Dr. Jean Redpath from the uh, Dola Omar Institute. MoneyWeb at midday for all your up to date stories. After a stronger-than-expected first half of the year, economic activity measured in the BankServe Africa Economic Transactions Index leveled off in the final months of 2023. The November index reading reflected another disappointing month, moderating to the same level as a year ago. More on that now from economist Elise Kruger. And Elise, given the readings and the contraction in real GDP in Q3, how likely is it then that we're heading towards a technical recession? Session.
2: Jeremy, not impossible that we might, you know, see a second quarterly decline. Uh, the Betty Index, you know, is indeed signalling that, that the economy is under pressure and, you know, we've had now five consecutive monthly drops in the Betty Index. And over time, the Betty has had a good correlation with GDP growth. However, you know, sector like the agricultural sector could perhaps bounce back. So it's not a definitive, you know, indication but it definitely signaled that the cumulative impact of many challenges are now at its harshest in the economy and that could very mm. well result in a further, further quarter of contraction.
0: How do you interpret then the stark contrast in economic activity between the first and the second halves of this year?
2: Well, yeah, that is indeed perhaps a difficult question to answer, but I would say we had the surprise in both economic growth and in the bit in the first half, and I think that was just maybe a, a factor that we've not quite seen the cumulative impact, you know, hurting the economy as bad in, in the first half than in the second half. Thinking about interest rates, we are now 125 basis points above a year ago's level. So that extra pleasure on household budgets, you now built up towards the second half half of this year you'll recall that we we sort of reached that upper level in the mid mid-year period similarly you know, we've not seen a notable drop really in our inflation rate, so we still have high cost of living especially on things like food prices so the pain is out there and I think we've reached a level where it's now more punitive in the economy than in the first half
0: and none of this of course Elise has been helped by the spate of load shedding
2: Absolutely, that remains perhaps the number one factor that has kept the economy back this year. But once you look at it a bit broader, it's also in the last month or two a logistical crisis that's been. Uh, getting worse. You know, we've also seen our job market remaining fairly lacklustre and, you know, wage increases not keeping up with inflation. So all of those factors in combination result in this fairly dismal economic stance where we currently are.
0: Mm. Elise, you've spoken about the, the signs of stress among households reaching punitive levels at this point, as you put it. Um, how do you think this is going to shape consumer behaviour in the near term as we then head into Q1 2024?
2: Yes, I expect more of the same in terms of the, the pressure on household budgets, at least for for Q1 you know, next year. I mean, looking forward into 2024, hopefully we should start to see you know cuts in our interest rate in the second quarter, uh, very much perhaps in line with what the US Fed might also do. And we should start to see our inflation rate also moderating a bit more towards the second half of next year. So that should help households on balance sort of from the middle of next year. But I think, you know, the first half will remain more of the same in what we have been experiencing i.e. it will remain a difficult economic environment.
0: But there will be factory pressure next year as well. If you look at the PMI, that's remained below 50 for several months now. Uh, It says a lot about the current state and, I guess, the future outlook for next year of the manufacturing sector.
2: Yes, indeed. The manufacturing sector has been under pressure actually for a couple of years if you really look at it a bit longer term. So yes, and you know they are obviously energy, you know, intensive in in terms of the usage of 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 power and so on. So although we've seen some resilience, you know, meaning we we could have expected uh, even worse levels if you look at the the, the load shedding in two thousand and twenty three. So sectors have started to adjust to that, and you know, looking at you know mitigating measures that have been put in place, and so on. But still, it's a muddle along scenario on manufacturing, and you know globally we've not been helped by uh, the global economy, which also had a difficult year. So, yes, I can't see much upside in manufacturing into next year. Uh, I think that sector will remain one where there's a lot of pressure.
0: So, short term then, as far as next year is concerned, are you foreseeing any immediate policy measures or interventions that could mitigate the challenges that you've outlined?
2: Not really in the short term, Jeremy. I think you know we've seen um, on power generation and now also on the logistical sector that the private sector has uh, you know been invited and started to to come to the party to help make a difference. But these are more medium-term developments. It's not going to sort out South Africa's near-term problems like in quarter one next year. But hopefully in the medium term, you know, talking more 2025 and onwards, we should start to see the positive impact of more private sector involvement in the economy, especially on the power generation side when we've started to see a, a huge pipeline of projects that are now being built. That capacity should come online in the next sort of 12, 18 months and should start to make a difference. But it's not a near term. It's, it's more a medium mm. term expectation.
0: Elise Kruger, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. In United Nations terms, the COP climate deal is said to be historic and also the biggest step forward on climate change since the Paris Agreement in 2015. But the big question is is this deal enough to keep temperatures in check? And Kateko Chauke from Oxfam South Africa joins us. The global organization does have concerns. A very warm welcome to you. Do you believe this deal then is sufficient to keep global temperatures, the temperature rise under 1.5 degrees this century?
3: Hi, Jeremy. Uh, thanks for having us on the show. Um, I also just want to recognize that the. Paris Agreement process uh, presents us with an immense opportunity to, you know, co-create and come to solutions that save our planet. Um, we have been informed by scientists; the science is, is actually telling us that you know we are already off track on keeping um, temperatures below 1.5. And what we've seen as an outcome for uh, the COP is a lot of concessions had to be made. Um, in terms of negotiations, um, some key milestones came up. I mean, this is declared as the first health cop. So a lot of considerations going into addressing health impacts and investing quite a great deal of finance into that. Um, But as Oxfam, we really recognise that we need new and additional finance. We can't keep on circulating uh, the same money. And without this finance, we really can't reach the targets that uh, we want to see. Now, for the African context, it's also entirely different, Jeremy. Uh, In essence, Africa is already by default on net zero. We are the least emitters. But, you know, the kinds of deals that have been brokered, one, do not guarantee us keeping on track, and two, have detrimental consequences for... uh, african economies as we have it
0: where do you think that finance should come from given there is a reluctance from the big polluters to make any further contribution
3: i mean i'll start off by saying that you know climate finance is essentially historical debt uh, from polluters in the global north who owe this money to uh, the global south so you can't essentially say that you know You owe me $10, if I may make an example. Uh, You break my windows in my house and then you offer me to loan me $5 to actually repair um, that damage. So essentially what we're seeing is that the use of money and how it's coming back or building back in terms of that responsibility often comes in loans and less in grants. Now where should this money come from? Um is a essential question. I mean there's a whole conversation just um around just how the fiscal space is really Uh, escalating the debt trap for African uh, countries. But we really need to create a global financial architecture that is fit for purpose in terms of the climate finance model we need.
0: And that's unlikely unlikely to happen in the short to medium term. So what you're also suggesting is that unless there is a change in that respect, uh, we're caught between a rock and a hard place. Nothing's really going to change
3: absolutely and we have um also an opening in terms of looking at the global tax archi- architecture itself i mean if we look at profit-based erosion if we look at you know uh, profit shifting illicit financial flows leaving the continent itself um, it's in excess of 500 billion So that's the kind of money, if we're putting regulatory frameworks that really ensure the safeguarding of this, but also creating a tax economy that builds back into uh, um, economies. So for us, debt in Africa is an essential problem. And until we tackle that issue around debt limiting the fiscal space, That's only when we can tap into uh, new finances to, to finance the kind of climate action that we need.
0: Another weakness that has been pointed out is that there is an agreement on transitioning away from fossil fuels for energy systems all well and good. But there is a there's no there's not enough focus on plastics, transport or agriculture, which kind of gives weakness to the whole argument, doesn't it?
3: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, a sticky point for these negotiations at COP28 was around key terms such as abatement, right? And a lot of blockers such as the major economies, US, China, were pushing back on, you know, the removal of that tax in terms of phasing out fossil fuels completely. Now, with that term abatement, there gives leeway for um, a lot of extraction to continue, uh, coal projects to continue, without also looking at uh, some of the mitigative action as well. Um, the least focus, as well, was on um, you know agriculture, and the argument has been that you know we need new kinds of technologies. Uh, that can help us in terms of transitioning and activating that
0: space. Mm. And as as, as you made the point you made a little earlier, all of this uh, does cost money. Unfortunately, we are out of time. So something to celebrate globally, but uh, still big problems as far as the uh, developing South is concerned. Nkateko Chauke from Oxfam, South Africa, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the program. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. Well, chances are you're going away from tomorrow and you might come back and find your house has been burgled. Many of us might not be looking for possible loss or damage, though. George Malachanev from Consult by Momentum has some good advice, though. So let's wade straight in as he joins us on the program. What then are the risks associated, as you point out, with reversing car insurance premiums during this festive season? And how can it affect your coverage?
4: Yeah, this has been a very worry, especially during the festive season, because uh, most of the clients, because of the festive season, because of the vibe around uh, December, we have we have realized that most of the clients, especially young people and most people actually during this time of the year, when the premium coming through, uh, they reverse them maybe because they want to buy something else through the premiums, and when accident happens and uh, the premiums are to be disputed and um, when the premium is disputed means you are actually saying i don't know this debit order and there's no way that the insurance will then uh, uh, consider your claim it's unlike when the premium is sent into the bank it's an insufficient fund that if it's insufficient fund you will give you a second option for your debit order to go through which means if you are paying five francs you'll be paying a double in the, in the second premium if that double is not going through the policies,
0: All right. So that's regarding uh, car insurance premiums. You've also yes. got some suggestions around best practice for securing a property, a house or an apartment when it's unoccupied during the festive season. What would your recommendation be in that respect?
4: Yeah, the recommendation is this time this time of the year we have we, we have load shading, we have all the water uh, shading as well. We'll advise people always when you go on, on vacation, just make sure that all your taps are closed, just make sure that all your door your, your your alarms are in order, just make sure that all everything is switched off so that if anything could happen during the this festive season you avoid destruction of your property, maybe fire, or it could be flooding of water. So we are, we, we have to avoid the theft as well. Just make sure that your alarm is in order, like I said, and your security doors and butlers are all in order. that's very, very, very important for that as well.
0: And to that point, then also critical that you look at uh, building cover for protection against natural disasters and unforeseen yes. circumstances. Again, something that people, I imagine, forget to do in their rush to go on holiday.
4: Yes, that's very important as well. And also, on a national disaster, especially, we have to maintain your building up as a certain point. I'm busy with a claim now of one of our clients; uh, the roof was taken by a natural disaster. But when when we send out somebody. Uh, to go and check what actually happened. We realized that the roof maintenance was ex- extremely poor. The, the roof was maintained or looked after in uh, 2014, and it was never maintained at all. So that is a very big problem as well, that um, during that event of natural disaster, as when you sent out people, they could still, besides that, the natural disaster struck, but there was lack of maintenance to our building. So it's important to, to actually maintain our building now and then, maybe after two, mm. three years or so, but building need to be maintained. All right.
0: So we've looked at vehicles, we've looked at property. What is the significance of having insurance border letters when traveling abroad as we switch focus?
4: Yeah, that's very, very important as well, uh, Jeremy, because um, you, you, your, your car is covered out of, out of the country for, for the period that you are out of the country. And um, on our body letters, we indicate uh, the countries that are covered when your car is out, like um, Namibia, Zimbabwe, Mozambique. So you have to indicate the period of the time that you'll be out of the country so that if anything happens, while the car is out of the country, we are able to assist you in terms of the towing, bringing back the car in the, in the country. So if you're going out for 10 days, uh, we always advise clients to say, you, you might not know what will happen. Just uh, make it 15 days in case you, you extend, you'll stay in, in that country. So that's what we, we normally advise our clients to do as well.
0: So I'm assuming that you would want to know where people are traveling Too, in order to make sure that that side of the of of the insurance is covered. Yes, definitely yes. All right, George Maklakani, thank you very much indeed from Consult by Momentum. Moneyweb midday for all your up to date stories. For a long time, advertisers have been calling on streaming giant Netflix to be more transparent about its ratings of content. And now it's released. The first of what it says will be a biannual list of all its shows and films and more specifically the hours viewed. Tech writer and author of the new book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to AI, Arthur Goldstuck, has been watching this story. Arthur joins us now. And why has there been increasing pressure then on Netflix to release this data?
5: It's a very interesting process that's happened with uh, Netflix. They've never released granular data on viewership before, with the usual excuse that the tech and entertainment business tends to trot out, which is that they don't want to give the competition sight into what they are doing, which is a little absurd because it almost always suggests that they're trying to hide something. And that's exactly the view of the uh, Writers and Actors Guild, who when they uh, struck the deal with the uh, movie industry to end the uh, the actor strike, it was one of their requirements that the industry become more transparent. At least the streaming industry should become more transparent to the viewership. So traditionally, the box office has always been highly transparent in terms of how many tickets are sold. And historically, in fact, you can see exactly what every movie earned, where it earned it, et cetera. But in streaming... There was nothing like that. And uh, this meant that there was an aura of dishonesty around the streaming industry, and particularly Netflix being the giant in the industry.
0: So, Arthur, have we learnt anything that we don't know? Not particularly,
5: but we are seeing incredible numbers for hours viewed of shows. The number one show is season one of The Night Agent, which had 812 million hours Of viewing, that's a lot of people spending a lot of time in front of the TV. Mm. And then uh, you go down to, let's say, uh, number five, which was Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story. Five hundred and three million hours spent uh, viewing that. So the numbers drop off quite fast when you uh, go beyond the uh, top eight or so. But they're still very dramatic numbers, and. They uh, tell us a few things. And the one is, as I said, how much time people are spending in front of the TV. And that probably suggests a massive opportunity for anybody who can create compelling content because you have almost a captive audience. But the captive audience certainly is looking for very specific kinds of content.
0: And that captive audience is what all the streamers want, don't they?
5: Exactly that. We're seeing a huge shift away from the fixed uh, TV schedule and the concept of cutting the cord has really come into its own in the last couple of years. Since the pandemic, in fact, we've seen cord cutting accelerate Mm. and uh, streaming is now almost the standard as opposed to linear TV, as they also uh, call it. So we'll still see that battle playing out for a few years, but it's very clear that uh, linear TV is an archaic concept so even the traditional tv channels are going to have to embrace the tactics and strategies of streaming and just to give you an example when netflix releases these numbers they don't release it per episode so it's not the first episode of the night agent but rather the entire season and uh, part of the reason they do that with almost all seasons is that they release the season in full there are very few where they uh, stagger uh, the release. Mm-hmm. So Hulu uh, does that, and Showmax in South Africa, when it uh, rebroadcasts the uh, content it gets from the USA, it tends to release episodes at, um, two a week of some shows, not all shows. Same with BritBox, which is also becoming more and more active in South Africa, more and more originals that they themselves are producing, as opposed to just rebroadcasting British. Uh, TV content. And the sense of, of being able to allow people to binge everything in one go or in one weekend or whatever the case might be, is becoming a, a dominant theme in a streaming TV. And I do believe that linear TV is going to have to find a way to adapt to that revolution.
0: Arthur, how do you think the release of this viewership data is going to impact the streaming industry as a whole?
5: It's uh, going to force everyone in streaming to become more granular in the data. The one thing that they didn't do, though, is they didn't release it by country. And I suspect that is probably going to come next in terms of that transparency that they're claiming needing to be extended to other countries. So the data was uh, presented in an online event last night, last night South African time, that is by the co-CEO of Netflix, um, Ted Sarandis. And he said that the move should end the mistrust about the streamers viewing performance. But again, it is geared to the mistrust of the American acting and uh, general uh, support fraternity in that environment, not globally. And that's probably going to have to be the next step that uh, Sarandas embraces. He's very familiar with the uh, global markets. He has taken part in Um, online interviews with South Africans in the past, for example. So it's not that they are obsessed with the American market, but they are certainly not going to give away more than they have to.
0: Just a final one, Arthur, and a quick one. Now that this data is available, are we going to see a change in the model as far as Netflix is concerned and uh, it carrying advertising?
5: They definitely are ex- experimenting with or looking at experimenting with uh, carrying advertising. And uh, that is one of the models that we will see in the future. I don't think the data itself will have an uh, impact on that. But certainly when people start advertising on Netflix, they're going to want their ads to be seen along with the most viewed of these. But the flip side of that is that the advertising costs or the what – Netflix charges for advertising Mm. will probably be associated with how high the viewership is. So it'll even out in the end. You'll place your ads where you can afford them.
0: Arthur Goldstock, thank you very much. And as we finish the program, other stories on our radar. In its six-month interim results to September, ESCOM spending 18 billion rand on diesel, which is more than half of the 30 billion it has budgeted to spend over the entire year. And MPs in the Public Enterprises Portfolio Committee have agreed to subpoena two key documents relating to the sale of the government's shareholding to in saa to the Takatso consortium Moneyweb at midday we are live at noon weekdays and then we are up as a podcast this is also our last program for the year we'll return on january the 8th 2024 thank you for listening and goodbye